This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Cassandra Austin, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. So happy to be here again. I know. So it turns out you and I spent some time together in your home. When was that? That was 2017 and you were sitting in my kitchen. Yeah. You loved my favourite yellow mug. There we go. And I must have had a cup of tea from that. <laughs> it was. It's really fond memories. I remember uh, your kitchen so clearly and the light shining through and having just a gorgeous conversation. And that was really back when I was still finding my way with Facebook Live. But we had a great chat. Yeah, it was lovely. It was really lovely. And now the world's yeah. entirely different than what yeah. it was then. Isn't it? Now, let me introduce you. Cassandra is in LA, but she was born on a farm in rural New South Wales. She studied criminology at the University of Melbourne, represented Australia at international conferences for human rights, and researched, wrote and co-produced documentaries on adultery, prostitution and art history for the ABC and Channel 4, all of which are turned out to be surprisingly good content for fiction. So she's here today, as I said, to talk about her latest novel, Like Mother, explores what is handed down from generation to generation and asks us whether a woman's home is her castle or her her cage. Wow, (laughs) that's quite powerful, actually. Do you know what hits me with, with your work? What was your last book? What was it called? All Fall Down. All Fall Down is how Australian they are. Well, you know, I'm an Australian girl through and through. Even though I haven't lived there for 20 years, I miss it like crazy. Talk to me about that, why you left Australia. I met Australia because I met a a tall, dark and handsome stranger in Prague. (laughs) And he's American and he works in the film and television industry and it doesn't make any sense for him to be anywhere else but L.A. Yeah. And talk to me about sense of place because... I think we might have spoken about this the last time we met. I wanted to know whether you dreamt Australian or American. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating... I certainly, you know, in the background here, um, I've got a whole lot of eucalyptus leaves and I certainly make sure that I've got things around me that I look at, that I smell, that I touch every day that are Australian. It's funny, isn't it? Because I know other people can't wait to get overseas and they have a grand adventure And my whole dream is to come back to Australia one day. I just, I miss it. I miss the people. I miss, I miss everything about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I spoke to Peter Carey in the middle of the pandemic very early on last year sometime and we were talking about the effects of isolation on writers, I think. And he still feels quintessentially Australian as well after all these years. And it makes me think about people that migrants, immigrants, you know, um, people that move, leave their homeland for all sorts of reasons, and how little we accept the dual culture sometimes. Do you find that? 
Do you have that experience? Yeah. Yes, you do, and 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 you know, there's a, there's a big lot of um, push for people when they're moving to a new place to adopt everything that they're in now, to adopt the food and adopt the language and adopt the customs. But it even the a, accent, even the that's right. Now, and I hung on to mine. Yeah, it, it takes a long time to adopt those things because it takes a long time to understand the meaning, the true meaning of of them. When you've grown up with them, you're not questioning what the meaning behind saying you know, how are you doing versus how are you going? Very different. When I when I came across here and I was sort of saying, how are you doing? People would say, what, what do you mean how are you doing? Yeah. You know, how are you going? And I know in Chinese it's have you eaten yet? And, I, know, you know, that the expression of how are you, I'm caring for you and I'm asking how you are, said really differently means really different things it can be it can take a while to pick these things up yeah and I think too because I spoke to this wonderful author the other day Dr Sarah Woodhouse um, and she has moved from the UK to Australia and you know when I was little and you'd be the same my idea of immigration was really Italians Lebanese people of color if you like who were having that migrant experience so if I met a person that had immigrated say from England or Ireland uh, or the US that to me wasn't the same thing, right? It because just the same, and exactly. you, assume, you assume a whole lot of cultural similarities. That's right. It doesn't necessarily work out that way. You're still separated by your experiences, cultural experiences growing up, the sorts of things that you ate. I mean, Vegemite. I put Vegemite on my children's sandwiches, which meant they couldn't trade it in the school ground. Yeah, no that's one. right that round goopy stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, I went to school with falafel sandwiches, so you can imagine what that would have been like back then. <laughs> but there is so much cultural differences and nuances in those places. And for me, the US particularly, and you know I like the US and I, I, I often visit um, and I visited you, uh, but I've, I really, it has struck me more and more as I visit how different we are as people. You know, my husband often says to me, it's two countries separated by common language. Yes. And I think, I think that's that's really true. Yeah. 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 We, we've got a lot of British sensibility as well as some of that American can-do, go-for-it sort of thing. And Australia brings the larrikin to it, the sort of why bother, mate. And the British is a little bit like, okay, if you're going to do it, don't tell anyone about it. They're really different sort of cultural attitudes to how you get ahead or how you try and... Um, you know, show your ambitions, I think. There's there's lots of differences. Yeah. And you know what else is um, striking too and what's striking for me is how much you don't know you know. And one of the things that happened to me in San Francisco in the last couple of years is I was, you know, just on catching the train system. I've forgotten BART, they call it the BART. And I came up at a station and, you know, I looked around and I just didn't know where I was and where I was going. And I had a little panic. I, I started to cry because I just thought, I don't know where I am. And that <laughs> never, ever happens to me here. If I'm going somewhere, I know where I'm going. And they're just the little things, aren't they? They are. And those are the physical things. Everything looks very different. You know, we have awnings in Australia to keep out the sun. And on the strips of streets here, Awnings really aren't so much a thing. So yeah. you, you get used to the physical look of things, but it's like you're saying, it's it's the deeper internal things, the way that you relax, the way that you express care or affection for someone or the way that you say, please don't do that. So strikingly different mm. between cultures. And that, you know, that takes a lot of work figuring yeah. it out. So your children, I guess, are American. 
Yeah, I guess they are. Although my son would say he's not. He would say he's Australian. He's pretty passionate about Australia. (laughs) Talk to me about that. Do you think about that a lot? You know, when it first, when we first started, you know, my daughter, my son called me mummy, but my daughter called me mama. And I couldn't believe how much it affected me that she called me mama. And I tried to correct her a couple of times and say, no, I want you to call me this other version of that. But she she grew up with the American, you know, children's books saying mama, mama. So I had to realise exactly as you're saying, I have an American child and, you know, I can take her to Australia and she thinks it's grand. We come over at Christmas, she has an absolute blast, but she lives here. She identifies as being American. And so that was really, you know, that was interesting for me to to have that shift as well. I often think about my parents because, you know, they're Lebanese Australians, so immigrants, and there were six of us and only two of us were born here. But particularly with them and in terms of language, like their children was better able. I mean, I remember translating for my mum when I was little. Wow. That's okay. tough, right? Isn't well, my it? children do that for me now electronically. <laughs> <laughs> they do. I still have that, actually. Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to go back to where you grew up. Talk to me about your upbringing and how the love of writing and reading came. Oh, well, I was born, as you mentioned, on a farm in rural New South Wales. Whereabouts? Um, Finlay, just, you know, the Southern Riverina near Tokyo, yeah, that area, tiny little place. And my parents had a farm, so I rode cows and I, you know, had pet lamb and lots of dogs and cats and, you know, it was pretty idyllic in many ways. And then we moved when I was about 10 or so to Bendigo, which seemed like an enormous city to me at the time. And I think throughout it all, you know, I was one of those kids who loved being outside and loved having her head stuck in a book. And I was always being told, Sandra, come and do this or come and do that or didn't you hear me or, you know, that sort of thing. And I was also, yes, I do. I have three um, siblings and then three step-siblings as well. Oh, wow. We're the Brady Bunch. Oh, yeah, big family. <laughs> and I was also that kid who would uh, sit on the big bed, mum and dad's bed, and tell ghost stories to all the cousins and, you know, scare everyone with that sort of thing. So I think in the back of my head I always knew that I wanted to write a book. I would, you know, that that would be a wonderful thing. But it probably wasn't until I was about 16 or 17 and I started to read the greats, you know, Tolstoy, Anna Karenina and John Fowles, the French lieutenant's woman, and I got so romanced by the whole idea of being a writer. But I didn't have, um, I don't know, I didn't have the courage, I think I'd be honest and say, to start that until I was well advanced and it wasn't until I was actually starting to make the move to this country and my husband uh, at the time said to me, well, you know, it's illegal for you to work here at the moment. We had to wait till I got my visa. And you you said you wanted to write, so why don't you give it a go? That was it. Once I'd written, all the other things I'd been doing to be paid went out the window. Because you, they were quite interesting what you did to be paid. So you studied criminology in the hope of being what? Well, a, a criminologist. And that's, a, you know, it's a broad term because mm. I did study criminology and psychology and I worked for the federal government looking at um, international human rights legislation around homelessness, looking at laws on vagrancy, loitering, looking at our shelter system. I travelled overseas to compare it to other countries and let me just tell you, Australia does an excellent job. 
you know, walking through the streets of San Francisco very often, I find really, really difficult. Yeah. And people keep telling me there's no solution. Oh, for God's sake, it's one of the richest cities in the world. Come up with it. Well, and that's what we're seeing increasingly. The rich are getting more wealthy mm. and more people are becoming poor. It's, it's a, mm. you know, you need to, <laughs> I mean, we could talk about public policy, Cheryl. <laughs> mm, we could. But I think it was actually my, you know, I'm, what frustration. It was I spent 10 years working in that field and I worked one-on-one with homeless people also who were trying to secure a shelter and I worked at a state level trying to develop um, policy around grievance procedures for people whose rights were being abused. And I think I got frustrated, to be honest with you. I couldn't see a way to change things systemically or structurally and I started to think, about, well, what if I went about this a different way? What if I made film instead? What if I change community heart instead of just trying to make policy with government? And that was really the start of my jump into filmmaking. And I worked for Don Parham, who has made many films, documentary films. I worked with him for a number of years and then went out and thought, well, I'm going to make my own. And that was when I met my husband and he kind of derailed that slightly. Mm. (laughs) It's storytelling, isn't it? It's all storytelling. Yes, it's all storytelling, absolutely. I think the other thing about filmmaking is that, you know, it's that third-person perspective that you have in novels, that omniscient narrator who can see into everyone's mind if they want to and see what they're doing. And so it was kind of natural in a way to be able to make that leap then into writing and think, well, what if I was the complete God? What if I didn't need a government or a producer or a director? What if I did all of that myself? And that was, you know, it was a bit of a revelation when I sat down to do that. It was a real joy to think that I could pull all the puppet strings mm-hmm. and say what I wanted to say. And here which, I still am. Which medium do you prefer? I think I prefer the novel. Also, it's just easy. I can sit down and write. You know, if my children are napping, I could sit down and write. If the dishes were on and the rain was outside, I could sit down and write. If it was, you know, it's much easier. Whereas if you if you're in a workplace and you need an office and a committee and you need funding or you need a producer, you're very... You need permission all the time with making films. All the time, all yeah. the time. And it's wonderful what you end up making, fantastic. Um, and I'm still obviously involved in, in various capacities. But in terms of actually getting something done and the way the, exactly the way that I want it to be, no, you mm-hmm. can't beat being God of your own work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
So tell me about your first book and tell me about the process of writing that because it is a big undertaking to write a novel, isn't it? It is. It's huge. Um, My first book was actually called Seeing George. Is that the one you mean? Yeah, that was a love triangle between a man, a woman and a dragon. But it's not fantasy because the woman, Violet, who is in that love triangle, sees the man, George, as a dragon and he says he is a dragon but Violet's husband, Frank, sees him as a man and so does everybody else. So it's a little bit tricky. Is it psychological? Is she a little bit crazy? Is this other man in love with her and he's just going along with it? Is he really a dragon and she the only one who can see him? You know, it was sort of a, it's sweet. It's a very sweet novel. Mm. And I, I wrote that with some friends, actually. I didn't, we sat down and said to each other, right, we want to do this. We know we want to do this. How are we going to do it? So we set a deadline, which happened to be St. Patrick's Day, so that we could all end up at the pub afterwards. And we wrote. Good incentive. Wrote, <laughs> that's right. And we all wrote and a couple of us actually finished something, you know, a draft, a rough draft. And we went down to the pub and that was terrific. And then, you know, you edit then. That's a whole separate story. Yeah, isn't it? And how did you get it published? I was lucky enough to sign up for what was a workshop at the time run by John Marsden's Thai estate. And in the um, the workshops, it said you will be introduced to an editor from one of the publishing houses. And so I thought, oh, wacko, you know, I'll get some feedback. And I met Nadine Davidoff, who was working. Oh, wow, Nadine. Yeah. 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 I worked and with her many years ago at Random House. Oh, she's wonderful. Exactly. Yeah. Random House. Yeah. So she said to me, I like your book. And I sort of, you know, I was so flustered. Um, I went into all these ways I could possibly change it, you know, chop this up and do this, whatever. And she just sat there looking at me <laughs> and she just said, no, I like it the way it is. Yeah. And I just, <laughs> no. So I had a bit of a dream run, to be honest with you, for a first book out. It wasn't the first book I'd written. Let's put it that way. I had actually written, I had a novel in the drawer that was hopeless, I'll never see the light of day. So it was actually the second book I'd written, but it was the first time I tried to show anyone what I'd done. And so I got incredibly lucky and don't underestimate luck. It plays such an enormous role in anything that you do. Do you know what I think it is? Um, You know, not that I'm a writer myself, but but I I feel as though I know enough about writing after spoke. I think I've spoken to over 400 writers in the last few years. But I feel, yes, luck is a factor, you're right. I mean, certainly talent and craft is a factor. But the other one, which, you know, very rarely gets spoken about is putting yourself out there, entering competitions, asking people, showing up. You know, a lot of people don't talk about that, but you can't be discovered by just sitting in your house, can you? No, you have to risk. And I I think if you want to be a writer, you really want to be read. Don't you? And I always think I've, I've done the first pass on this book. It's now ready. It's published. It's ready to go into the bookstores, ready to go into the reader's hands. But the book is only complete when it's read. It's only complete where someone's actually taken all those signals and, you know, lines and images and characters and made a real world of them in their own head. That's that's the actual completion of the journey. And in order for that to happen, you have to risk rejection. You have to. Mm. Well, I um, There's this Australian author called Joseph Moon and I've spoken to her uh, about I know, her. I know her book. Yeah, she's just got a new one out. Yes, so yeah. lovely. But she got 100 rejections. Right, right. Yeah, well, good. She had a spreadsheet and she well, just kept them. She kept them. Yeah. yeah. I, 
that's fantastic. That's and really she kept improving and she kept taking on the changes and she wanted to be a writer and that was it. So she kept going. I mean, I don't know whether I would have that stamina, but she certainly, it's paid off for her. She's well read and well loved. I think the interesting thing is if you start a new job in any field, you expect to be an apprentice level in, in some sense or another at the start. You expect to be corrected. You expect to be told do more on this. You expect to have to redo reports and all the rest of it, and it's not a big deal. But when we have that as writers, it feels intensely personal because we're not sitting in a group of people where it falls on the group of people. It only falls on you. Mm. So you have to decide that you can pick yourself up and, and redo what needs to be redone. And that I understand that. That's hard. Mm. That's really mm. hard. But it's normal. I, I, it's not, you know, it's not some strange ritual that writers have to go through alone. Everyone goes through it. All right. So talk to me about this book, uh, Like Mother. Um, firstly, give me the premise. Okay, so it's, I would say this is maybe mummy noir or domestic noir. It's a mother-daughter drama and it's narrated from three different perspectives. A young first-time mum, 24-year-old Louise Ashland, her husband, 26-year-old Stephen Ashland, and Louise's mother, Gladys, Gladys Bilton. And it's a series of events that occur over only one day after Louise has woken from a nap, she's had an early morning nap because her little baby girl, Dolores, has been screaming for two days and nights. She's put her down for a nap. She's gone for a nap. She wakes up, goes to check on her, and baby's not in a cot. Hmm. So, <laughs> hi, Jason. And nobody else is coming to the house. Right? <laughs> uh, very, very suspenseful. So, again... Talk to me about setting and when you're writing, and I'm going to go back to the Australian-American thing, where are you? <laughs> well, look, this is set in 1969 and that's the year that I was born. Yeah. And so in, on the one hand, you know, there are certain things that I can remember of that time that, that for me that would have been the early 70s by the time I start remembering things. So, you know, I can remember my mother at a mangler. We still had a mangler yeah. washing machine. Yeah. And I put that in the book. You know, I can remember lots of things about the 60s. But also because that was the year I was born and there's a lot that I don't know, I sort of felt free to invent as well. So it's a sort of dream period for me to start with the, the 1960s. And then also 1969, that was the year that man walked on the moon. Mm. So you've got this fantastic technological advance. You've got this sense in fashion, in in um, appliance sales, if you look at the ads of the time, in smoking, and every, everyone was referencing astronauts and the moon and how everything was going to be changed. We were going to, we were bringing the future to us in a way. We were, we were going, mankind was going to live completely differently. Of course, now we know that we didn't go back to the moon after 1972 mm. until, you know, um, more recently the rovers and things, but it just seemed it, it, as a period, all that change, all that technological advancement seemed like a great backdrop against the reality of a young woman who's experiencing being a mother for the first time and still living fairly remotely, you know, no mobile phones, no internet, no easy answers to any of the problems that she's facing. Um, against, you know, the backdrop of what was happening in the world. I, I just loved that opposition. I thought that was great. So I really let that play out. And there's a bit also a touch, well, um, uh, quite a bit of, of the role of women. 
Yes, I do. I am focusing on that. And the role of motherhood, yeah. Yes. Talk to me about that. Well, you know, I think we look at the, the, the suffragettes and what they're able to achieve in getting us the vote. We look at the 1960s and say, well, feminism and look what it got us, you know, it got us into the workplace and close to equal pay. Let's not get into that too much. But now here we are again with Me Too and mm. what's going on in the Australian Parliament mm. and you realise how far we still have to go to stop seeing the male of humankind as the yardstick from which females deviate. Mm. We're both people and we need the same respect, the same work conditions, the same treatment, the same rights, you know, and, and there's still such a... Somehow that still seems to be a revolution. <laughs> that we're Well, also pair, uh, being a mother, I think, still seems to be a revolution. I um, was listening to a conversation between Julia Gillard and Madeleine Albright the other day, just on a podcast. Really, really great conversation. Look it up if you want. Um, but one of the things that struck me is Julia asked Madeleine about what she what one of the start what was the starkest thing she noticed about working in an all-male environment at the time being a diplomat and what was she foreign secretary or anyway she said and this really struck me she said the biggest difference was that men had the luxury of thinking about one thing for a long time and women thought about a lot of things all of the time I don't know if that's the direct quote, but that's what she was saying. And that reminded me of being a working mum. Yeah, that's right. That's And that's the reality. You can't escape that. And politicians and uh, look at Julia Gillard, my goodness. She was oh, pilloried, for not, pilloried for not wanting children, pilloried for, yes, it's, it's very different. And no one says to a male politician, well, what about your children when they're about to hop overseas on some sort of junket? You know, it's, it is, it's double standard. We know that it's double standard, but part of the reason it's double standard is because our workplaces are also not structured for women. We don't have creches. We don't, you know, job share is still new, all of that sort of thing. It doesn't It doesn't help the idea of working mothers. And anymore. one of the things that I thought about was why is it that I was speaking to this, I was speaking about this to a friend. I was telling him that, you know, I'd listened to this podcast and, and, and a male friend of mine, and he said, I wish I could do more than one thing at a time. And I wondered... And he really meant it, right? He's got a big job and he would like to multitask a bit more and he doesn't feel that he's capable of it. But I wondered, is that of our making? Is that of our biological making or is it that that's what we've been doing for a millennia and that's why we've ended up? I think you're right. I think it's probably both. I think that they definitely, you know, biological evolutionists would tell us that there's definitely the way a woman's brain works in terms of creating community and connection that does mean that we end up doing two or three things at one time and maybe men were more focused on protection or food um, at the specific time. But it's also true, of course, that we've set up now systems this way that reinforce that, that okay. women can do most of the housework at home while working a full-time job the same as her husband does, only he's not expected to take that on. I mean, he, he gets it wrong when he does it, you know, makes a mistake with the washing or, you know, whatever it is. It's well, I easy. thought about, in light of that conversation that I heard with those two wonderful ladies, I thought about you this morning while I was walking in the park and I thought you're doing the same thing. I mean, you're writing at home. Yes. You know, yes. you're doing and the so same with, thing. with this pandemic, I had my daughter at my work desk 
I had my son on the couch in the living room, and I'm at the kitchen table with him. <laughs> yeah, and your husband's in the uh, in the He's got his office. That's right. He's separated and, from the home. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, and we do reinforce and set up, you know, our own little cages in that sense, in some ways. But you ask the woman who's doing that, and fifty percent of them will tell you they want it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. it's, it's tricky to say we all want this or we all want that or it should be like this or it should be like that. I think that what we really need to move towards are options for people. Yeah. Oh, look, I, I even look at myself. I don't have children, but I'm thinking about a million things all of the time. You know, yeah. I'm just, yeah. that's just why I'm made. I'm making bread. I'm speaking to an author. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, re- I do think of- women do that. We do. Yeah, we do. We do. We do. Yeah. 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 And so I got a sense of that too from reading your book. And one of the things I thought about is have we changed? As, no. as parents, as mums, as <laughs> we have no, 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 I don't think so. Yeah. Anyway, so you're working on something else? You know, I had so much fun writing about the ants in this book mm. that I decided they needed their own book. So <laughs> I'm actually now writing about them. They were, you know, they're such a source of um, mischievous joy in this book. You know, yeah. they really give Gladys a hard time, and it's good for someone to give Gladys a hard time. So I, I just love them as characters. Yeah. I just thought, yeah, I'm going to write about them now. What do they get up to, the three ants? What do they do? Yeah, that sounds like fun, actually. Yeah. All right, well, I better let you go. Thank you so much for your time. And it was so lovely to catch up again. And maybe, maybe I will see you in person, you know, maybe sometime next year. Fingers crossed. Yeah, that would be yeah. lovely, Cheryl. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.